Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name's Nesh Nikolic, and my guest today is Dr. Divna Haslam, and she is here to talk to us about the Australian Child Maltreatment Study. What a pleasure it's been to speak with Divna about this study, the data, the implications for Australia, and I think a hopeful future about what we can do when we have good research that informs policy. I urge everyone to listen to this. I think there's a lot to take from this in terms of how we approach maltreatment, not only for young people, but as a society, for culture, for our next generation, and also to talk about this episode with others. I think this is relevant for all Australians, and I hope you get a lot out of it. It's certainly been eye-opening for me. Enjoy. Devna, big thank you for coming onto the show today. I'm I'm really excited to have you on board to to discuss this, you know, really important study that that you've been working on, the Australian Child Maltreatment Study, and and find out not only some of the results, but hear from someone like yourself in terms of you know what are the things that we can start looking out for as a community and how policy might be shaped. Uh, so really excited, and and thank you for coming on. Delighted to be here, Nesh. Thank you for having me. Before we get started, tell me a little bit about how this study has has come about. Obviously, something of this scale doesn't just happen overnight. Um, and I like to always know what the bit of the backstory is. Uh, sure. because I think that's that that's an important part of the the uh, picture as well. Yeah, and I mean, it might surprise you to know, Nesh, that up until this study, we had no information on how many children experience different types of child maltreatment, so sexual abuse, physical abuse, and things like that. And there'd never been an interest in a national study, in fact, despite researchers kind of calling for it. And it was the Royal Commission into Institutional Sexual Abuse that kind of really pushed this forward. So uh, one of the recommendations from that Royal Commission is that we conduct a nationwide study to look at what's the prevalence of sexual abuse and different types of um, child maltreatment in Australia and, and also really what are the impacts of that in the Australian community. And then that kind of led to an XMRC submission, which led to the opportunity to do this important study. I'm absolutely surprised that that we don't have data available or haven't had data available. How how does that even happen? I, I thought that would be quite quite a an important a basic. Yeah, some basics really. Yeah, and I mean, it, it really speaks to the issues because how do we develop policy and practice without really knowing what's the state of play? So we we did have data on how many kids were involved in child protection systems and things like that. So we had data how many kids are removed from home, but we know that that's just the kind of tip of the iceberg. So many, many children either don't get notified or experiencing levels of abuse that don't meet those thresholds. So the, the data that we had, A, wasn't national and B, was only that kind of very tip of the iceberg. And so what we wanted to really do was look at, let's look across the population, not just the hard cases. Let's look at, do the kids in your street experience these kinds of things? Do the kids in your kids' school, you know, how many of these um, of Australians have experienced this type of thing? Because then we go, how much do we need to invest in that? If it's not many people, maybe we don't need to invest at the same level. But if it's a high percentage of Australians, then 
we really need to be doing something more about it than we have been. It's so interesting because it's something that we know is occurring, but not really knowing a prevalence or, or how it plays out and is it different yeah. in 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 you know, different regions or, or or you know how it shows up in different age groups, all sorts of things I'm sure could be extrapolated mm. out of getting getting real data. Um uh, 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 so I'm excited to hear about how how um how how was the study you know conducted because that it's a big big piece of the 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 puzzle as well. I know something of this scale is is not easy to to put together, and I imagine the um, uh, the cost might, might must be uh, extravagant. But at the same time, you know, I think we need to throw more at this the, the, these types of um, studies because this is really uh, what can inform big picture policy. And I think when you know if, if this, the data is not there, we need to kind of know what we're dealing with. Yeah, exactly. So we had five years to do the study. We're now kind of the end of our fifth year at the moment. And we spent the first kind of two years really looking at what are the conceptual models of child maltreatment. So what does sexual abuse really mean? What does emotional abuse really mean? Do we count emotional abuse by parents or also by teachers and coaches and other people in the child's world? So what we wanted to really do was a really strong, rigorously designed study. So that's if the numbers came out really high, people couldn't say, oh, those are overestimates. That's not really true. So first of all, we wanted to map the kind of conceptual models and make sure that they were really robust. So we looked at the literature globally. We said, what are the best studies internationally done and how can we enhance those or make that a little bit better in Australia? The second thing that we kind of wanted to do was to pilot the study. So, of course, we wanted we developed our, our, our items or our questions that we're going to ask participants and then we took those two people with lived experience. So what did they think? Was this the kind of thing that would capture their experience? Did they see concerns about um, asking people this? Because essentially, as I'll go through in a minute, we just rang people up and said, can you tell us about your childhood? Um, and developed kind of quite stringent criteria and protocols for the safety of participants. Because, of course, talking about childhood experiences, as you know from your clinical work, can be either quite distressing or kind of people can just do it boxed off and talk about, you know, this has happened to me, but I've talked about it a lot. I'm not really in touch with the emotions of it. So we kind of wanted to have some really strict protocols in place to ensure safety and particularly for the young people. So we started surveying people at 16 to make sure that we could follow up if they did report ongoing abuse that was an issue. Uh, so we developed all of those, we tested them and we we looked at the kind of sort of statistical nerves listing, the validity of the instruments and making sure that that worked, but also just to make sure that people would say the same things over time. So we we rang everybody out, we asked them questions, then we rang them a couple of weeks later and said, you still answer the same way, basically, because, you know, data is only as good as the quality of the data. So we wanted to make sure this wasn't a, a Clio, you know, magazine poll, this was like a, a strong study so we did all of that and then we were very confident with our instrument and then we went to field and we basically um, called eight and a half thousand Australians so we surveyed people from 16 years of age right through to 65 plus so we looked at kind of three and a half thousand young people 16 to 24 and then a thousand people in each of those age decades so that we looked at you know a thousand people from 25 to 34 35 to 44 and so forth and that kind of ties back to what you were saying before is there might be changes over time. So we wanted to look at mm. has the historical prevalence of maltreatment changed? Is, is it getting better or worse? And, you know, it's a cross-sectional study, so we can't say for sure there's changes, but 
we can say that's probably as close to change as we can estimate in, in this kind of study. You're saying, you know, if the rates of people that have experienced physical abuse, for example, are much higher in older people than younger people, probably something in society is changing. So um, we surveyed all those people, we rang them up, and then we just asked them about all kinds of things in their childhood and their current mental health and how they were doing, how many times they saw a doctor, all these kind of things to look at what's the impact of these experiences over the course of life. I like the methodology of calling back and asking whether all the answers are still relevant. You know, I know that obviously yeah. as a psychologist, we, we can understand that people might be avoidant or might be overwhelmed by, by questions. We can, mm. um, you know, change our mind as to how we, the language we might've used and so on. So I think it's a really important part of, of uh, I suppose, the validity of the answers, uh, so they can they can be robust and yeah. and, and uh, mean meaningful uh, to to inform. Uh, so that's that's yeah. that's, a, that's a lot of work, um, but uh, it, it does, yeah. does change what the study says as well. Yeah, and it changes your confidence in in the data, right? So another thing that we did was we asked very behaviourally specific questions. So if you say to a child or an adult, "Were you ever abused in childhood?" They might say, yes, I was, or they might say, no, I wasn't. But in actual fact, whether they were or wasn't is not contingent on their interpretation. So there are people, for example, that might have experienced something that we would classify as sexual abuse. So um, being flashed at, for example, voyeurism, we would say that is a form of sexual abuse, whether or not that person kind of contextualises that as I've been experienced some form of sexual abuse. So we wanted to ask them, behaviourally specific questions like did your parents ever say x y or z to you rather than were your parents emotionally abusive so it takes out some of that subjectivity which allows us to be a little bit more confident in the answers mm -hmm. and that's I think why we got that consistency of response in that pilot work and in some sense uh, I, I suppose what you're trying to do and and my my um, apologies if I'm jumping the gun but there's a quantitative and then there's a qualitative aspect to this so that you can hear people's story and how they explain it, but also that there are defined attributes of, of at least the behavioural space of what occurred. I know, for example, having an Eastern European um, upbringing yeah. uh, from, you know, migrants that, that have come in, you know, we might commonly even joke about, you know, getting a little bit of a, um, you know, uh, 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 Flogging, so to so to speak, you know, and, yeah. and we might we might yeah. exaggerate that. At the same time, you know, if someone were to observe some of that uh, in today's society, today's day, that they might be appalled um, and, and go, mm. "My goodness!" But you know, when you grow up in that, and you know, you're used to you know, as a, as a young boy, and mum giving a couple of good you know wax on the bottom or whatever it might mm. be, um, uh, that was kind of part and parcel um you know and that comes from an incredibly amazing and loving mum um not throwing her under the bus uh, oh, know, no. uh, uh, uh something that was culturally you know appropriate at least in in her experience and, and and the like but it's interesting because i might downplay that in my language and say yeah this is this is yeah. kind of normal and so that might not come out versus saying you know were you know was there a time that you were ever you know physically you know smacked uh and then you'd have to kind of say yes to that because that's that's the facts rather than saying oh no mm. not really it was you know wasn't very yeah. much um so once again the validity of, of getting the data of, of uh, the behavioral yeah. component 
And actually what I really like about that story is that mimics all of the things that I've heard from um, different types of culturally linguistically diverse people. And in fact, we're trying to do a study with just cold people so that we can look at it. are there differences because there are those cultural norms. And I mean, even within the Australian population, there are changing norms in what people have historically done as parents and, and versus what they do now and things like that. There's, there's changing kind of swings and roundabouts of what's normative and what changes and that's sometimes quite different against culture. And sometimes those things can can exist alongside very loving relationships. So they, they may not have the kind of adverse outcomes that they would have in another family where they don't have that kind of love and support. So it's mm-hmm. it's really kind of so unique and contextual based on the family and what else is going on. Mm. Can you uh, uh, help with 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 defining some of the those terms? I know that you mentioned that was the very start of the study getting getting some mm. uh, uh, appreciation of what these these categories mean. Uh, you know, whether it's the sexual, the emotional, physical, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's probably other ones that that I haven't considered. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's always interesting trying to trying to understand how do we conceptualize maltreatment um, uh, because yeah. you know, I think definitions are always hard. Um, exactly. You know, and if, if we if we kind of go really black and white in them, that gets even more complicated. But I understand we're trying to get an understanding, a picture. Um, uh, to obviously inform, uh, you know, the, the rates, um, prevalence of, mm. of maltreatment. Yeah, so there are five types of maltreatment that we assessed and we also assessed alongside that other things like experiences of corporal punishment or parental um, dysfunction like substance use and things like that. But the five key types of child maltreatment are physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, neglect, and uh, one that's been more kind of recently categorised as one of those primary maltreatment types, and in fact, we're one of the, the first studies globally to assess this, is exposure to domestic violence. So I'll go through kind of what I mean by each of those. So physical abuse, obviously, we're talking about um, parents or, or anyone else, in fact, for physical abuse. So this might be a teacher or a, a clergy person or a sports person um, being physically um interacting with children over and above um, basic smacks of discipline. So we asked, for example, did an adult ever hit, punch, kick or physically hurt you? Or did an adult ever uh, beat you up, hit you on the head, choke you or burn you? So these are, are quite, you know, extreme items. They're not kind of wishy-washy. They're, they're very mm-hmm. specific. Um, in terms of sexual abuse, we used the definition by uh, Matthews, which was really looking at, at did a person and and i specifically use the term person here not an adult because we include sexual abuse by other young children under 18 um ever do something to a child that was without their consent or the child had the capacity to give consent but didn't give consent uh, for the purposes of some kind of sexual gratification so uh we wouldn't have have included for example someone you know smacking them on the bottom if it was like kids smacking each other but not for sexual purposes. Mm-hmm. And for sexual abuse, we further separated it out into kind of contact and non-contact forms. So by non-contact forms, we mean things like exposing someone's genitals or looking at someone's genitals. Um, and by contact forms, we're talking about the whole gamut, right from kind of touching up to attempted forced intercourse right through to forced intercourse and um, rape. So kind of quite 
you know, serious things there as well. We also looked at, but we haven't got the data on yet, um, internet victimisation. So that will be coming out soon. So um, just for young people, because, of course, the older people didn't have the internet when they were growing up. Um, But the young people, of course, have grown up with the internet. So a lot of this behaviour can occur online. So that, that data will be coming. So for emotional abuse, we limited it just to parents or primary caregivers. So um, that's because the model really suggests that that's, you know, the best way to kind of capture emotional abuse. And by emotional abuse, we're talking about a negative or hostile pattern of interaction between parents and children. So it doesn't need to have happened, you know, every single day, but it needs to have happened over a period of time. So we asked parents, uh, we asked participants, for example, did um, any of your parents insult you, humiliate you, call you hurtful names? Um, did they ignore you, fail to show you love and affection? Or did they tell you that they hated you, wished you were dead or had never been born? So really kind of, you know, quite specific but also quite extreme things. And then we asked a follow-up, say, how long did that occur for? Because, you know, I'm a parent of young children and mm. occasionally I've raised my voice and I've, you know, probably said, you naughty girl. We're not kind of really talking about that. We're talking about, you know, negative patterns that go over time. So mm-hmm. we ask people then, did that occur for days, weeks, months or years? And we only classified it if it was at least weeks. And, in fact, most of our participants said it was over a period of years. It's really lovely uh, to capture it that way as well because the first question asked, did it happen? Um, yes. And, and and so that that allows for obviously that conversation to to open up to that, and then the frequency becomes a secondary, um, which allows you to classify and understand, and 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 that's got value in it as well because I'm sure um, if it's not used in this study, other studies could could look at um, you know how frequency does play into to other factors, but uh, 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 that's a really lovely way of doing it. Yeah, and I mean, I should clarify, we were very specific in our items, so we didn't let people just talk at length about things. We had kind of like sure. how many times did this happen and things like that to keep everybody on, on the same track. But sure. um, that frequency is important. And also it's important because, you know, if you think about the impact on mental health, if something happened once versus something happened every day of their childhood, of course that's going to have a different impact on how they're going and, and you know, what, what the impact of that is. Um. So then the next two are neglect and EDV or exposure to domestic violence. Neglect is really kind of what people think about. So failing to provide a safe, you know, hygienic home, um, failing to provide medical care. So, you know, sometimes parents will know that a child has a medical illness and needs to see a doctor but fails to take them or fails to provide them with food that they need and things like that. So um, that's probably the one that's closest to what people would think about if I said to you, what's child neglect? You're probably more likely to, to pick that one up than some of the others. And then one of the ones that I think is really important for um, our current climate, particularly socially, given all of the kind of violence against women that's happening at the moment, is experiences of exposure to domestic violence. And here we were trying to assess what children, and, and by children I mean up to age 18, had witnessed in terms of violence between their parents or between their parent and you know another parental figure, so a, parent, a mother's boyfriend or a father's new girlfriend or, or something like that. And we are looking at um, a number of different forms of violence. So physical violence, so did, did they witness, um, and by witness I mean see or hear, um, someone being pushed, hit, choked, punched, those kind of things, um, threatened with physical um, violence, 
um, all kind of damaging property. So like uh, an environment of fear, so damaging property, uh, throwing things, that kind of thing, all that kind of intimidation and coercive control to try and stop another parent doing something or not doing something. Um, and it's just occurred to me as I'm going through these, I'm kind of mentioning these items, you know, relatively au fait. I've been working with them for five years, but we probably should kind of put, and I'm sure you will put a, a, a warning at the beginning that this is, you know, covers lots of things because the reality is a lot of your listeners will have experienced some of these things. And when we get to the the numbers, uh, I think you're going to be surprised at, at how common some of these things are. So those are our kind of um, five key types of maltreatment. It's 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 so interesting in in psychology that that because we try not to shy away uh, from whether it's in an individual therapy basis or you know in in research, um, uh, we try not to shy away of you know what 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 might be difficult conversations. Uh, how for us it becomes so easy um, because it's something that we learn and practice, and obviously where we're you know coming from a an objective um, uh, space, and that obviously put help, helps with putting that space in between. But it's such an important thing that these conversations are had. You know, it's almost like you know, if we shy away from domestic violence, just in case someone's upset by it, it's like the reason why domestic violence is upset is upsetting is because it's a hurtful behaviour, and it not only harms the individuals, it harms the children that observe it, it harms the community, you know, it harms culture and how you know mm-hmm. men and women relate with each other um you know the the, the fabric of society with regards mm-hmm. to respect and, and safety you know these things have to be discussed and and you know i feel that that means it also means that sometimes it's hard um and, mm-hmm. and feel painful and you know thankfully these pains uh, do decay but um it's certainly important for listeners to to um yeah, appreciate that some of these things, and I'm sure when we get down to the stats, um, is going to be uh, quite surprising. Um, mm. uh, I mean, I think it's always surprising when you think about children and you know maltreatment. It's um, something we don't like to think about. You know, it's like oh, yeah, I live on my street, things are good. You know, kids go to school, everything's fine. You know, we might see a few children that that you know appear to be acting out, and and you know they might be going through difficult times, but we don't try and sit there and think about what might that home look like or other homes. Mm. Um, mm. You know, we all just put a nice shirt on and so on and so forth. And we play the game, um, so to mm. speak, uh, put on that face and try and get on with life. So um, yeah, let's, let's, let's delve in. What, yeah. what, uh, what are, uh, are some of what the major findings? findings? Just, just before I do, I just want to, I'm really uh, interested in your comments about we need to have these conversations. And as you were talking, one of the things that kind of um, came to my mind was we also need to have these conversations because when you bring things out into the open and you give people permission to talk about them and you normalise the experiences, it enables people to be more likely to come forward and to be able to mm-hmm. do so in a safe space. So when we kind of think, oh, you're, no one would do that to you, but when we say actually this is probably more common than you think, it enables those kind of victim survivors to have to say, actually this happened to me. And we know a lot of people have historically not disclosed these kind of experiences. And I would like to see that this data go some way into to highlighting that this is a national problem and this is something that's occurring to many, many children and something that we need to be able to do something about and, and should become a part of our 
our kind of conversations in society and, you know, we, we'll talk about that a little bit later, I guess, in terms of what do we do with that. Well, it's like uh, all those campaigns about, you know, men not speaking in a derogatory way about women. And, mm. and if that is something that has a voice, you actually start having pockets of men going out and saying, hey, mate, that's not okay. Even though it's a group of men, we don't agree with that. And so there's a cultural shift. It's slow, but yeah. it's important. And, and if we want, you know, Australia and Australians and, and obviously our children to grow up in a in a world that respects each other more, period, irrespective of, you know, whether it's, you know, sex, age, you know, you name it, um, it's really important that that we can have these conversations. So, um, yeah, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. The more we talk about it, the more permission uh, or, or courage people have yeah. in terms of saying, hey, gosh, you know, that, and it might be only only on an individual level where they might say to a partner, that's not okay. You know, I'm, I I don't feel that's reasonable and comfortable because I've heard it's not um, and mm. it doesn't feel right. So maybe I can't have a voice, but uh, um, yeah, really, really important um, conversations yeah. to have. Yeah, and ch- changing those kind of expectations. Um, okay, so what are the data Look, you're a clinical psychologist or a psychologist, so I I know for a fact that you would have experienced lots of or worked with lots of clients that have had these kind of experiences. So I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you to estimate what, what you think the numbers would be, um, but I am going to just take a moment and, and ask listeners to think, what do they think? So, you know, to take a moment and go, if you had to say out of, you know, 10 kids, how many do you think would have experienced some form of those five types of maltreatment that I was talking about. Take a moment and just have a think in your head. And um, then, then I'll tell you what we found. And what we found was that 62% of Australians, 6 in 10 Australians, 16 through to 65 plus, said yes, they had experienced one or more of those five types of maltreatment physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, neglect or exposure to domestic violence in childhood before they turned 18, 62%. Even worse, when you look at gender differences, women are much more likely to have experienced these forms of maltreatment, 65.5% versus about 58%. So there's clearly a a gender difference and we found some gender differences as well in terms of um, different types of of maltreatment and I'll I'll just give a quick comment about gender diverse individuals we did assess gender diverse individuals and the rates that they had were even higher so you know really this is a major issue is the gender issue maltreatment is a gender issue so I mean how does how does that fit with what you were thinking in 10. I, I I was um thinking in my mind 50 percent um mm-hmm. uh but I was thinking maybe I'm overstepping the mark maybe I'm overcooking it um mm. you know, it's so hard to even think of what what the number can be you know mm. even 20 percent sounds absurd um uh, and then kind of pushing it to 50 and now hearing you know 62 um that's uh that's incredible. Um, mm. You know that is a staggering number, um, uh, and 
clearly also much more representative, uh, sorry, much larger number than I would even say is represented even in therapy. Um, mm. I, I would not go out and say that, uh, uh, you know, six in 10 uh clients report that yeah report that and and maybe that also to be fair is is because exposure to it experiencing it doesn't necessarily mean that it is causing um you know maladaptive yeah problems you know in 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 a in a lifetime but uh uh, it's certainly very very high isn't it um Mm. um, you know, maybe on the positive, it, it demonstrates our robustness that that there's, there there is a capacity for us to uh, see well beyond um, these these uh, great challenges. But um, yeah, that's staggering. And I mean, what what really shocked us as a team was that that's the majority. You know, it's mm. it's not that this is a small group of people and. You know, you heard me say some of those items earlier. They, these are not wishy-washy. Were your parents ever a bit mean to you? Did your parents ever tell you they hated you or wished you were dead? Um, so, they, you know, that it, it was kind of quite shocking. Let me unpack for you a little bit more of the different types because um, there's two other key points I wanted to mention here. So, first of all, I'll go through the types and, and then I'll mention... Actually, maybe I'll, I'll just do it now. The other key finding that we found was that most people that had experienced some type of maltreatment, so of those, um, you know, people that had experienced any form of maltreatment, the vast majority, two-thirds of those, had experienced more than one type. So they'd experienced perhaps physical abuse and emotional abuse or something like that. So they're not isolated, one-off, I just experienced this type of abuse. Most of them are experiencing what we call multi-type maltreatment. So more than one mm. type. And at the Australian population level, that's 39.4%. So four in 10 Australians have experienced more than one type of maltreatment. If we break it down into the different types of maltreatment, we've got about 32% have experienced physical abuse. Uh, 28.5% have experienced some form of sexual abuse in childhood up to age 18. 30.9% have experienced emotional abuse. Uh, the lowest abuse type we found or maltreatment type was um, neglect. So 8.9% of Australians had experienced some form of childhood neglect and a whopping 39.6, almost 40% had experienced exposure to domestic violence. So across the, the board, we're kind of seeing generally around 30% of people accept that exposure to domestic violence and is much higher and neglect is a little bit lower, um, which is, you know, quite concerning. These are not, you know, mild. Uh, and perhaps even more concerning is when we look at just the young people, so if we look at just our 16 to 24-year-olds rather than the whole kind of 16 to 65 class, we find that emotional abuse has actually gone up or it looks like it's going up. It's higher at 34.6%. Um, and also exposure to domestic violence has gone up as well. So that's 43.8%. So if we're thinking about what governments have invested in, we've, we've done a lot really in trying to reduce sexual abuse and that, you know, maybe in some areas is going down, but emotional abuse and exposure to domestic violence is highest in our youth samples and that's, you know, a concern for our, our current kids. Mm. These are just... Uh 
quite significant numbers um, all around. It's hard to get my head around. It doesn't surprise me that that uh, such a large number that most had experienced, you know, two or more types of, mm. of, of uh, uh, maltreatment because they often, I think, come together. Um, mm-hmm. you know, obviously, you know, if someone's being, you know, experiencing physical uh, abuse, there, there's more than likely emotional abuse will be, you know, within that within that space, um, mm. you know, there might be other exposure to to domestic violence that kind of I think would probably correlate. And obviously, you you know the the, the data, but those mm. types of things I can um, uh, see they don't they don't happen in in um, isolation. Um, mm. But at the same time, geez, the rates are a uh, huge, and and in some of those cases, going up for really our our. Current, you know, I think if, mm. if we're saying sixteen to twenty-four, that's kind of saying what's happening today. Um, exactly, and and and, and uh, in those categories, they're going um, up. How I ask this question out of curiosity, not not one to kind of say that this is okay, but how do we stack up against other? countries um and it doesn't mean that if you know we're higher or lower you know just trying mm-hmm. to be respectful in that in that sense um you know this isn't a better or a worse but uh are these the types of trends that we see around the world is 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 you know is, is our culture um uh, somehow you know has a forcing function for this to be higher or lower what what does the world trend mm. you know look like um and i know that country to country will be different and regions i'm sure um and, and maybe it's very hard to even comment because you know these types of studies are so detailed about how to do it so it's kind mm. of apples with oranges comparison but what's your um thoughts uh, on a, on, a, on a general basis how how does australia show up in in the data yeah, it's it's a good question. It's kind of tricky because you you know, like you said, it's apples to apples and oranges, whatever that term apples is. And apples and oranges. To apples. <laughs> yeah, um, because our study asked retrospectively, so we said sixteen plus, and a lot of studies actually just directly ask the kids, and so that's good in some ways because you get it directly from the kids while they're children, but it means that you get kind of underestimates of what happens throughout the whole of childhood because of course if you ask a nine-year-old they're only able to report up to what's happening when they're nine whereas you're not capturing that kind of particularly for for sexual abuse we found um peers uh, were a big perpetrator for sexual abuse so you're you're missing those kind of things so i think overall you know for some areas like sexual abuse we're, we're probably on par for instance with the uk um, but in other areas, I think it's it's a bit of a poor report card for Australia, and and certainly you know that the numbers are staggering. But when you think about that, those statistics represent children and family, and when you think about a child that is growing up in a home where they're experiencing physical abuse, they're experiencing you know maybe emotional abuse, and then they're going to school and they're getting you know additional vulnerabilities from home that are, are putting them at risk for other things in school. It's kind of this, you know, negative cycle that can happen so that kind of kids get more disadvantaged over time. So I think it's the, in fact, some of our, our other work um, about multi-type maltreatment found that family-related risk factors, so having a parent with a mental illness and things, increased the chances that there would be multiple forms of maltreatment. So, you know, you're getting these uh, highly dysfunctional homes where kids really are not benefiting from those factors that give them the resilience that they need, you know, and that's why 
you know, you said some of the good news is we're doing better, you know, in terms of mental health and things than than we could. But, you know, that depends on whether there are protective factors in place and what's going on in those families. Do they have somebody that believes in them and that can kind of mitigate some of that adverse experiences that might be occurring in the home? Or, you know, sometimes the, the abuse or the maltreatment is occurring elsewhere. So you might have physical abuse from a, a teenager, but they have a loving home and that's why they seem to be doing a bit better. So, you know, that's one of our areas that we're going to be looking at in the future is why do some kids do better? And, you know, we'll talk about the impact on mental health and, and suicide and things in a moment, but why do some kids do better and some kids don't? You know, we, we don't really know that yet mm. where we, we need to go next. It's it, it's fascinating to try and think about how how these come about. And uh, I was actually speaking my most previous podcast with uh, 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 an author, um, Helen Joyce, who who um, uh, has written on many topics, and one of them one of them being about um, sexual assault and you know pedophilia, uh, and and uh, it didn't occur to me um, until she said it. But then it's kind of like you know bright as day. Um, that most of it's not necessarily between an adult and a, a young person. It's actually peer to peer, and you know that was quite quite obvious and and and, and surprising at the same time. Mm. And 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 that's the point of these conversations of, of, mm. of saying how does you know maltreatment abuse occur, and and you know, and therefore as parents, how do we do this? How do we protect our kids? How how yeah. do we understand this? I mean, I, I know right at the moment we. Um, one of our children has been invited to to a uh, sleepover, you know, and we're mm-hmm. not against sleepovers. Um, it's a very nice, beautiful part of of, of yeah. childhood. Yeah. At the same time, you know, it brings brings uh, you know a, a level of nervousness, you know, and mm. and if we were to ask the question, you know, what don't you trust these? And it's like, no, I do, but I um I don't trust statistics, you know. I don't I don't I don't I don't I don't want to. It's no different to. You know, I do trust myself driving, but I still put a seatbelt on. Um, mm. You know, there, there, there's something about it and and how we do it. Um, you know, we don't want to protect our children so much because that can be have its own harms um, mm. uh, attached in how we do it, I suppose. But, uh, you know, these are all questions that I'm sure all parents uh, wrestle with and, and struggle with. And how do we do this? Because we, you know, we, we, we love our children at the same time, you know, we want them to be you know experiencing the whole of life not mm. just cotton wooling them um uh, cotton balling them uh, because it's 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 a very complex uh state so you know understanding that it's actually peer-to-peer uh is is, is what to uh well a place to look out for and it's like so mm. obvious what's it said um you know but at the same time i like looking foolish because it helps me learn. It makes me a better psychologist, makes me a better human. I'd like mm. to think it makes me a better dad. Um, yeah, actually, sure. these conversations. Um, so, yeah, how, how does this inform? Um, you know, maybe you can talk talk us through yeah. some of these aspects and, and um, uh, uh, you know, what you're beginning to extrapolate and, and what, what are the understandings around this too? Yeah, and I, I mean, I think what you've you've captured there is some of the changing perceptions that have occurred. So, you know, back when I was growing up, there was a big focus on stranger danger and, and you know, everyone was worried, don't get in a car with someone and things like yeah. that. And so <laughs> that that's kind of carried on in our head and you're probably the same. You think, oh, we worry about the strangers. And then you find out. Because that's what they do, the right? They, they jump out of yeah. cars, they grab yeah. kids. And then... Here's the candy, you know. <laughs> 
but but that's not the majority. The majority of kids that are experiencing sexual abuse are experiencing it from somebody that they know, and it might be you know a family member or a. I mean, God, in in, in Brisbane, we've had some horrible cases about daycare um, perpetrators and things like that. But you know, as your your previous guest said, a lot of that is peer to peer, and so what we need to do. As a nation, I think, but particularly as parents, and I've done a lot of work in parenting, it's, it's an area I'm really, you know, passionate about is making a difference, is how do we empower our children to know what's safe and what's not safe and to react if somebody does do something? Mm. So, mm. Uh, you know, things like being very practical, talking about anatomical names. So my children can talk about this is a penis, this is a vagina, What rather than using the kind of wishy-washy, or someone touch you where you don't like because, what does that mean? Right? So they need to be able to use those things. And there is, in fact, data that suggests that that some perpetrators are less likely to uh, molest children or abuse children if they appear kind of confident and knowledgeable. But then what do they do? So do do we talk to, pe- to kids about, you know, if something happens, if somebody touches you in a way or touches one of these parts of your body, that's not okay. And, you know, this is your body and having those kind of body ownership conversations. And in particular, highlighting that even people you know and trust might forget these rules. And so what to do if that happens? So say, no, stop, that's not right. And then you tell mum or you tell dad or you tell one of your trusted people in your environment. Because if we don't kind of give children that language and and that should start from when they're very, very young. You know, I'm talking to my two-year-old, my three-year-old. Actually, well, she's three now. But, you know, my, my young children about, you know, what do you do if somebody does this? And... um you know, because otherwise kids grow up with, oh, that was uncle so-and-so or, you know, the teenagers like, oh, that was, that was, you know, my boyfriend, that's okay for him to do that. But it's not, you know, mm-hmm. children are, and in fact, all of us, not even just children, have ownership of our own body and it's up to us to say what's okay and what's not okay. And we need to be able to keep them those boundaries from early on. So there's those kind of practical things that parents can do, but also a lot about, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, preventing um other things from occurring, so there's new data that's come out of the um, Longitudinal Study of Australian Children just recently showing that positive relationships with parents in adolescence actually is a protective factor against intimate partner violence, you know, the, the year or two later. So even that kind of open relationship where you're talking to children about things um, actually does protect them from further types of adversity, you know, external to them. And... Um, the government talking about sexual abuse has pushed out a campaign at the moment called One Talk at a Time. And I, I would encourage you to, to have a look at these videos, a series of videos that just show kind of parents talking to kids about, hey, that's not okay. You know, if somebody approaches you online and asks to see this, that, that's not okay. And, and we can go in and um, readers or viewers can kind of link to their um, government website to get resources about how to talk to kids and things like that because it needs to be, not a single conversation that needs to be going on. And then when you come to that situation where your child is saying, can I have a sleepover? You get to make that decision with them about are you confident that they could handle things if something inappropriate was approached to them? Do they know how they would respond and what they would do? Have they got a way of ensuring their safety? And do they have the skills to kind of navigate? And then you get to make a decision as a parent. Yes, you know, how much you trust the, the family that they're potentially sleeping with and that might vary from family to family but also how much have you empowered your child Mm. to understand you know what and when and how to react 
and you know that might be different from child to child and from from different family to different family so you know it's it's that tightrope that we walk as parents of how do we ensure like you said they don't miss out on you know really fun parts of life but we're not putting them in potentially dangerous situations or setting up an environment where they're overestimating the risk of you know everybody is out to do something when that's not the, the truth either so it's a it's a tricky tightrope I think in terms of prevention but we need to really be focusing on that it is interesting however trying to to think about in that in that sense of how confident you are that your child understands these concepts obviously in an age-appropriate way but empowering them to understand that these things are in the environment and uh, or can be found in the environment and and how might they respond to it um, and i know that i've certainly tried in certain areas um for example you know where you're allowed to be touched um trying to name uh, places of the body you know vagina boobies etc um uh, to ensure they understand that and you know even across the internet about trust that you know people might you know young people so adults might pose as as uh, young people and send you photos and then ask you they might want to see those areas etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm. trying to be fairly explicit but what's interesting is i haven't whatsoever thought about the emotional stuff i've yeah i've certainly done it on the sexual side um but I haven't done it on the physical, haven't done it on the emotional, haven't done it on mm. neglect, uh, not you know exposure to DV. It's only kind of been this one this one area, which is kind of fascinating, mm. just kind of reflecting on that. Um, when in actual fact, the, the numbers are you know thirty two percent for physical, thirty one for for emotional, one for neglect, mm. thirty nine exposure for you know EV, EDV. Um, yet. I've kind of neglected those, you know, it's just fascinating mm. to, to even watch my own behavior and kind of think back and go, wow, you know, the, these conversations aren't being had in, in, in their full because they, they overlap. They, they mm. don't happen, you know, in isolation, as we said, yet here well, I am having and, a conversation in isolation. Yeah. And I mean, I think you're describing what lots and lots of parents will go through and even myself and I worked in parenting for years. I never really thought about what are my strategies for trying to protect children from these things because, you know, in, in my mind, we've got a safe, loving environment. And But, you know, once I kind of started this research, I was like, oh, we need to empower parents to have these conversations and things like that. And even, you know, for the, you know, giving body ownership and, you know, you don't have to kiss me if you don't want to, or you don't have to kiss someone. So how do, how do you want to say goodbye? Do you want to high five? Do you know, whatever you want to do. But I think what you've also captured there is there's an awareness in Australian society about sexual abuse being inappropriate. And there's probably some myths about who's doing it and, you know, how common it is and things like that. But if you ask anybody on the street, does sexual abuse of children occur and is it wrong, they would say yes. But when you think about emotional abuse, there's no conversation at a national level mm. being, being had. There is nobody that's saying, hey, don't call your children names. You know, and there are a lot of parents that will lovingly or jokingly call kids little toddlers or don't be a little so-and-so and things like that. But those messages, when they're consistent, actually really can get ingrained and internalised in children, particularly if they're kind of the more sensitive kids. And so what I would argue we need to do is start that 
kind of conversation that we've had at a national level about the prevention of sexual abuse or emotional abuse in particular. And, um, you know, one of the findings we, that we found about mental health was that that sexual abuse and emotional abuse were particularly harmful in terms of, of outcomes in mental health and, and different areas. So I think those are the two that we really need to be focusing on in, in our conversations. And we need campaigns to be saying to parents, hey, how you talk to your children is really important. Make sure that you're not using terms like, you know, you little so-and-so or, um, or or even in, in the height of anger, what can you do? Can you stop and take a breath before you speak if you're afraid you're going to say something? Because, look, parents get frustrated. You know, all parents get frustrated. All parents kind of have moments where they're like, oh, they're being a little so-and-so. But we need to kind of empower parents to think the language that we use and the interactions that we have with children set them up for a life that's going to predict the way that they interact with other people across the lifespan. And so if we get parents thinking, hey, notice the way you're talking to children, how's that going to feel to them? They don't necessarily, as children, have the capacity to think, oh, mum or dad's just really mad or, you know, it's they're just frustrated. They don't mean it when they say, you know, you're a naughty kid, you know, and, and that's why you'll find parenting programs focus on behaviour rather than global statements about children because we're trying to avoid that kind of patterns of negative interaction. It's also fascinating fascinating about how that gears up or influences a young person to see norms for when they become an adult. You know, I I know for myself, you know, my my internal opinion uh, uh, for a large portion of my life was you know, if someone is misbehaving, they just need a good old flogging. Yeah, because yeah, that's that how you were raised. Absolutely yeah. right, and yeah. and and it's like, and I'm the proof. You know, I learned my lesson, and 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 it's correct. So you know, it's that real naive space. But uh, 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 you know, what we're what I think a more sophisticated version of that is is, is saying someone really needs uh, concrete boundaries about what is okay and what's not, and you know, reinforcement you know both positive and negative um versus you know your your shortcut of someone needs a good old flogging but what's 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 interesting is that if we're not even having this conversation then my daughters grow up and they might go out and say well uh, uh you know even if they haven't experienced emotional abuse from mum and dad that doesn't necessarily mean there isn't emotional abuse from peers from you know uh, others they're not necessarily cognizant of what that even means. And why wouldn't we put that in their brain now mm-hmm. so they can look out for it and, and hear what's okay, hear what's not okay, like mm-hmm. we do with the sexual conversation, um, mm-hmm. so that when they do become young adults uh, or teens, they've got a scaffolding that they can kind of at least lean on to it to a degree and understand what's what's okay and what's not because that's the culture they're bringing forward you know um you know it's going to obviously match part of mum and dad part of school part of society but it's going to be their own interpretation of that so i think the importance of of all of that conversation um you know even like you know how we raise kids around you know sexism or ageism or having those conversations ingrains that now um, mm. so that they can obviously be a little bit more rounded than maybe their parents uh, have been um, to have the conversation. It, it feels like this this should be a national conversation, um, period. Yeah. 
yeah, I mean, 100%, and, and that's what we're kind of pushing for is, is emotional abuse to become a part of the, the prevention of maltreatment at a national level. And, you know, you're right that, that kids learn about their own sense of worth and what's okay and not okay in relationships from family, and then they take that out. And, you know, we wouldn't call, um, you know, that kind of abusive behaviour from peers emotional abuse, but it's still, it's still emotionally abusive behaviour in a sense. And so when we tell kids that that's okay, um, you know, that, that changes the way that they think and what they accept. And what we want to do is do everything we can, like you said, to proactively raise children that know their boundaries and know what their worth is and are not willing to accept things that, you know, deviate from that or, you know, push those boundaries. And that's the only way we're going to get changes at a national mm-hmm. level. And, um, you know, the fact that our, you know, some areas of sexual abuse is declining, you know, in our young people, particularly, you know, parental um, abuse by parent figures is, has declined in our youth sample. That tells us that these national campaigns can work. And, you know, we can make a difference in national prevalence if we invest, but we need to actually start investing in um, the prevention of, well, all of these types of maltreatment, but particularly emotional abuse, um, because that's so linked with, you know, later mental health, suicide mm. behaviours, self-harm, all those kind of things. And it's so important, e- e- even that that note, um, that emotional abuse from peers needs to be considered with much more nuance because, you know, there is a level of exposure in that that we might go out and say is, you know, bullying at its worst, um, you know, maybe poor behaviour at another level. But there is a normal aspect of that when you put 600 kids together in in, in one area. So we don't want to necessarily label everything and then, you know, have that model coddling sort of issue arise as well. Similarly, we don't want to ne- uh, neglect that that whole concept altogether. All so it's it's about empowerment and boundaries, so that young people mm. understand what the boundaries are, irrespective mm. of what we call it. It doesn't need to be emotional abuse mm. to have a boundary around it. It doesn't need to. Yeah. As a matter of fact, if there's strong boundaries about around it, it might mean that it doesn't get to that point of sexual abuse for example because someone says you know a child's empowered um or they can protect themselves to not fall into you know situations that that make them more vulnerable yeah and we know that stable loving homes that you know are not where parents are not engaging in emotional abuse and things like or some of these other forms of treatment you know those kids are more psychologically robust and they do have that kind of protective factor there's a lot that families can do that can set kids up for success but we also need to kind of empower those parents to be able to provide that. You know, it's, it's easier for some parents and, you know, there are, are some parents, of course, that are facing all kinds of other stresses that that make them more likely to engage in some of these, um, you know, negative behaviours. So it's a, it's, a, it's, a tricky, it's a tricky issue of how do we handle it, but certainly starting at a national level and then providing parents with the support that they need so that they can avoid unhelpful parenting behaviours that at its worst can become emotionally abusive and things like that um is is really critical so what are the what are some of the suggestions that have come out of these studies in terms of how we tackle this on a national level you know campaigns conversations programs how do we do mm-hmm. it on an individual level you know what what can i take away from it other obviously listeners what are some of the uh keys you know yeah Top, top, top three, so so, so to speak, without without a sort of degrading the value um, by by giving points. But 
what what do we know so far? And obviously, there's a lot more to yeah. come out as well. And I know that your your you and your team are still writing new papers coming out, yeah. and, and there's more to be done. Uh, but what what are we what 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 what's what do the we do? current um, state? Yeah, recommendations. Yeah. and. I- my make a suggestion there, just before we talk about that, can I just talk about another reason why we need to do something? And Please. that is particularly relevant from a, a psychological point of view. And that is because there's sometimes a myth that, misbelief that these child maltreatment experiences just influence children in childhood. But actually what we found is that those experiences of maltreatment in childhood have a long-lasting impact. So when we surveyed all of the Australians, 16 to 65 plus, we found that one in two, basically, 40, 48% of kids that, or of adults that experienced maltreatment in childhood went on to have a diagnosable mental health disorder, one of four that we assessed. So we assessed PTSD, um, generalised anxiety, severe alcohol or alcohol use disorder, um, and major depressive disorder. So that's only, as you know, a subsection of all of the different presentations that people can have. That doesn't include eating disorders. That doesn't include personality disorders. It uh, doesn't include any of those things. But one in two of those kids that had, or those people that experienced maltreatment as a child uh, were more went on to develop a mental health disorder compared to about 21%. So one in two versus one in five that didn't have So one, one in two of the 62%. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so basically, fact, that would be a yeah thirty-one percent. Um, if I've got that right, or I'm, I'm extrapolating it wrong. Uh, uh, if if sixty-two percent of respondents said that they've experienced one or more uh, forms of maltreatment in childhood, uh, and one in two of those uh, will, will go on to develop one of those four, you know, PTSD, yeah. generalized yeah. anxiety. So we'd yeah. say that the correlation at least is is a 31%, one in two that is, uh, will have a diagnosable. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can put it to you even easier. So people that have experienced child maltreatment are almost three times more likely to develop a mental health disorder than people that don't. Um, and in particular, they're, they're, you know, four and a half times more likely to develop PTSD. Um, and in fact, if you want to look at, you know, non-diagnosable issues, of course, you know, these kinds of things are just, you know, quite, you know, you have to meet quite stringent criteria to have a, a mental health disorder, you know, criteria by the DSM. But if you're just looking at subclinical thresholds, they're probably even higher. So, for example, we found that... Um, people that had experienced um, child maltreatment were 6.2 times more likely to be cannabis dependent, um, almost four times more likely to have self-harmed in the last year, um, four and a half times or 4.6 times more likely to have attempted suicide. And so all of those kind of odds ratios that kind of, you know, the, the pattern shows us that mental health problems in general are much, much more likely in people that have experienced mental health disorders. And in particular, when we look at kind of that co-occurring maltreatment patterns um, and we kind of control for that, so we look at which of those maltreatment sites are most harmful, that's where it comes back to what I was saying before with sexual abuse and emotional abuse. So for self-harm, for example, people that experience sexual abuse are 2.7 times 
God bless you. Thank you. Um, more likely to, to self-harm in the past year, even if you take out all the influence of other experiences of maltreatment. Similarly for suicide, you know, people that have experienced emotional abuse are 2.3 times more likely to experience of attempted suicide if they have experienced maltreatment, even after controlling for any other types. So there's clearly a really strong, unique influence of those particular types. And even worse, when you looked at our older age people, we found that it was really impossible to find somebody that had attempted suicide in the past year if they did not have this history of maltreatment in childhood. So the, the, the impact of this starts early and then it, it actually continues right over the course of life. And, you know, we, we need to know, you know, half the people that experience maltreatment don't develop a mental disorder, for example, but we don't know what why those people do okay and other, others don't. So we really need to kind of be looking at that for, you know, if you think about the mental health budget, we think about the health crisis that we have, um, Productivity Commission, I think, estimated $220 billion a year it costs the Australian government to handle mental health crises and suicide. We could prevent a fair chunk of that if we could actually reduce maltreatment. So it's, you know, mm. there's there's the reason for reducing maltreatment because it's it's harmful for kids and it's wrong and as a moral imperative, absolutely no child should be experiencing this. This is never their fault and it shouldn't be happening. But also from a you know a national level, it costs our country a lot of money, and so we need start thinking about prevention and reallocating that money that we're currently spending on tertiary services and, you know, in investing in better health access and all those kind of things with prevention because we could potentially divert some of these cases of mental health and suicide behaviour. So that I really, and I mean, even psychologists, I mean, they're three times more likely to see a psychologist, um, to see a psychiatrist, so that, you know, these are the people that are our bread and butter as, as psychologists, but, you know, and, and they may or may not disclose their yeah. childhood history. And it, it may or may not seem directly relevant to them, but statistically on paper at a population level, there's a really strong connection there. Um, so it's, it's quite, know, we've got to it's do quite easy to, and I hate, hate to use this word, you know, sell, um, yeah. but it, it, this is this should be an easy sell to government policymakers. Uh, uh, and I say that because, Without getting too too uh, negative, uh, I think that sometimes the pain and the hardship of of human beings can be neglected, uh, pushed aside, and for some, when there is an immediate attributed cost factor, it's easier to sell that and say, you know, we could reduce this by you know X. Uh, uh, which can then be reallocated. You know, I'd like to think, you know, back into the same thing until we can exhaust that at least, you know, play out most of the the uh, interventions, thoughts, um, you know, gambles that we run as to what's going to work. You know, we've got to try mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. uh, but we should, be, we should be doing that because when we have a look at those numbers against the total population, um, the rates are staggering and, and that has such huge implications. And I, I would like to think that the cells should be quite easy of saying this is something that, that even, even if the prevention model, um, you know, early, early intervention prevention model, only accounts for five percent 
reduction, you know, uh, uh, which I think would be very modest, but 5% over, you know, 200 and something billion that you mentioned, my goodness, those numbers are staggering. And, and to go out and say, let's, let's, you know, gamble, um, uh, if, if I'm not so um, kind, but let's say, let's gamble three or four or five years worth of, of, of budget of that 5% to see if we can move the needle. And that that's a decent gamble um, to, 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 to prevent or mitigate or to reduce a number of childhood exposures to maltreatment. I mean, like, what are we talking about? This should be something that is discussed on the front page of, of you know, the Australian or something and, and or the financial review and saying, look at the money that could mm. be saved here. I don't know. Whatever it is, let's get people excited about it so we can try and move the dial because, you know, we're talking about our whole society in actual fact and, and everyone would say the same. Prevention is better than, than uh, you know, treatment later on um both are important obviously yeah of course but there's there's obvious there, 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 there's there's a gap or, or an opportunity let's call it to say let, let's put something behind um you know australian conversations about how we do this better in inside our families um so that this is a national conversation that obviously then people like myself can can try and take into our home um so even if these things aren't occurring it doesn't necessarily mean that that information to young children doesn't have a massive effect for the next generation. You know, mm-hmm. maybe that's part of the, the challenge. The human condition is is not being able to see ahead of time enough. Mm-hmm. So we tend to kind of get caught up in the, you know, today's budget and today's problems versus what does yeah. it look like in 20 years if we do something today. Mm. And it does require that kind of long-term vision. It's it's hard, I think, for governments to invest in prevention because they don't see the benefits while they're in term, right? They, it's it's a longer-term thing. And but you know, globally, that's what we need to be pushing towards. You know, it's that's something that that's the only way we're going to do it. And it it's not going to divert every case. There's still going to need to be you know more intensive services. And nobody's arguing prevention fix things, but there are a lot of practical things that probably are going to be cost effective to roll out nationally that would make a difference and I mean one example is is parenting there's there's really good data from the US and there's a study that's been done in Australia um, looking at the widespread um, implementation of triple p I know you've had um, a social professor Lynn Morowska on the program talking about parenting for and I mean in the US we found that providing that prevention parenting program actually reduced physical abuse that it reduced hospitalization you know attendance it reduced the number of kids that needed to go to out of home care and things like that and we've got australian data coming out about that soon which i mean fingers crossed i think we'll we'll probably find a similar pattern and so then that's something we can easily implement you know and it it won't fix everything but it's a relatively inexpensive one it's expensive but it's inexpensive way to make a big difference um at a population level so there's opportunities yeah, I, I always think about it as, you know, we're not eradicating any of this. We're just looking at small percentage point reductions. Like like what you've said that for 16 to, to, to 24 population that, you know, the emotional um, maltreatment's gone up and, mm-hmm. and you know, that that's that's always concerning whenever it goes up because it's not the direction we want it to go, you know. And, yeah. and we're not saying that if it goes down from 31 
um, I think you said 29, uh, 29.9 or something. I've ran, sorry, um, uh, uh, 30.9, I think it was, but I rounded up in my numbers here to 31. Uh, even if it goes down by half a percentage point, that doesn't mean that it's good. It means it's better than uh, yeah. that. We continue to work on it, but little by little, you make these little incremental uh, uh, movements and who's to say that in as i said 20 years time if these numbers went from 62 percent on 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 uh you know total population down to 55 percent you know what what an amazing if, if you extrapolate that to to the population number exactly hundreds of thousands of, of, exactly. of millions in actual fact people yeah this is a huge cultural shift so little by little um no different to how do we go out and try and support our our indigenous you know people? Mm. Well, guess what? We don't know, but you just keep throwing stuff at it. You know, like like let's try and be informed, scientific, methodical. Try it, give it a crack. Let's try it mm. again. And, and we're talking about uh, something that's that's most important. I get kind of you know a little bit excited about about this because it, it's something we should be doing that we have an opportunity to do. Um, and I think it's particularly exciting because. To me, it's an easy sell. You know, it's it, it's hard to go out and say invest in something that might make a difference um, versus saying, look, the chances are it's quite high that it will. It'll be a percentage or, or part of a percentage point. Let's throw lots of those at it. And who knows, maybe we get down to 55%. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I'd, I'd love it to be zero. Um, yeah. But I'm not ridiculous. Um uh, but we should be be, be doing this and and uh, you know like the triple P rollout. How amazing! Good on government mm. Um, mm. Uh, and both sides that then support it. You know, it's not just one. Yeah. You know, we shouldn't be saying one. Throw all that in the bin and just say government. Period. You know, yeah. representing Australian people, continue to support this and let's do more of it. And and, and yeah. obviously do the data to demonstrate it you know, in a, in a methodical way, because if it isn't working, it isn't working. If it is, then great, support it, you know, similar mm. to, to what you're talking about today, you know, more funding mm. for you guys. Well, and and more kind of cross-government. So you're, you're exactly right. It needs to be a whole-of-government thing, not just a political party, and it needs to be across departments. And, you know, it, it doesn't fit squarely anywhere, but it, it, it impacts everything. So it needs to be part of the health. It needs to be a part of child protection. It needs to be part of youth justice. So it's it's all of these impacts kind of occur across all of these different silos. But if we could get people working together on a common goal and a common aim, we could really make a difference. And you're right, if we, if we could reduce that percentage from 62% to 55%, like that's hundreds of thousands of kids and, you know, changed lives that could potentially make a difference. So, you know, it's step by step. What are some of the early recommendations in, in how, and, and obviously, you know, neither of us are policymakers and the like, but where, where do you see the opportunities lie in terms of how we might approach this on a, on a broader level? Um, yeah. and, then, and then maybe you can even speak to how we might do it inside the family um, on, on an individual basis. Yeah, I mean, I think government has actually been really receptive to our, our work. We've worked quite closely with the National Office of Child Safety and as I said, they've already rolled out, you know, in part as a response to this data, uh, a new campaign for preventing sexual abuse to change the national conversation about that. 
I would argue that we really need to, or our whole team actually, I should say, I'm talking on behalf of our whole team here, um, would argue that we need, you know, a, a whole of government approach. So we need to not have it sitting with health or something like that. We need a whole of government approach. We need to have prevention and intervention. So we need to change that that messaging around how do we, you know, taking it off just child protection and getting it on to the prevention. We need to encourage parental support you know, right through at different key periods of life. And I think we really need to to have an emotional revolution because, you know, the, the whole finding about the, the significant impact of emotional abuse is really important. And, you know, that I think impacts all of these areas of a child's life because it changes their sense of self and um, how they perceive the world. So I think if we can change the way that we're talking about it and getting kids to respect each other and to respect themselves, that will go a really long way because, you know, that that will impact things like violence between kids, that will impact intimate partner violence, that will impact kind of mental health, you know, all, all of those things, that kind of emotional revolution will make a difference. Um, and I think we also need to be really looking at the gender issue. So the fact that, that women are reporting much higher rates of, you know, really maltreatment overall but also particularly of um different types of abuse, so emotional abuse, um, sexual abuse and neglect, we need to do more to protect our young women and our young girls because, you know, that's something we can make a big difference in and kind of fix that up a little bit. So there are our kind of big picture goals. And, of mm. course, what we are hoping is that we can do all of these things and then repeat the study and see if we have moved that dial at all and, and what changes have been made. And there is hope because it's worked in sexual abuse prevention we've seen some changes and some decreases there so i'm hopeful that with the right investment and the right messaging at a national level we could actually make a difference um, at a, a more personal level within the family i would just encourage people to start having conversations so i'd first of all encourage parents to be reflecting on what's happening and you know we didn't have data from parents about how many were engaging in these behaviors but if 62% of the population would experience something and some of those are just at the hands of parents, so emotional abuse, neglect and really exposure to domestic violence, they're all only in the home. So parents need to be reflecting on what what are they doing and are they falling into any of these kind of um, patterns? And if they are, then get support. You know, there is good support out there and, you know, this is not to judge parents because it's hard for parents and they've got lots of things going on, but A, do some reflecting and, and go, okay, do I need help with my parenting? Am I finding that I'm really angry or I'm probably saying things I shouldn't do? Do I need to get some help for my own mental health or for my own substance issues or whatever's going on? So but for all parents, I would encourage us to kind of check of where they're going. And then for every parent or every family, I'd be going, what am I doing proactively to let my child or my children know that they're important, that they're valued, that they're loved? on a day-to-day -day basis to kind of combat those occasions when parents lose it and, and maybe say things that they don't mean, but also proactively in terms of their own body ownership and what they deserve and, and don't deserve and giving them the skills and having an open dialogue about what's what's what they're really worth. And so, it, you know, I know I've, I've said to my children, you know, I'm sorry I yelled. I shouldn't have yelled at you about that. That was the wrong thing to do. And I think, you know, you were saying earlier, I, I like to make mistakes. And I think it's the same thing for us parents. We're not going to be perfect all the time. So we need to be talking to kids about, you know what, I, I shouldn't have made you kiss Aunty so-and-so if you're a young child. Or, you know, I, I probably overreacted to that. But, you know, I'm sorry. And, you know, your your opinions are important and valuable and things like that. So 
thinking proactively about what you can do. I've, I've got a couple of conversation pieces about um, sexual abuse prevention and particularly online sexual abuse prevention. I can I can send you to links if there's, that's an area that lots of parents are interested in. But I'd really encourage people to be thinking about those emotional um, patterns of interaction and what they're doing and making sure that, that the stable, loving relationship between parents and children are there because that form solid strong attachment is really critical over the lifespan so um, get Mm. support if they need it and be proactive to the extent you can that's really good advice and i think in in some sense saying you take an interest and Mm. and in some sense also take an interest in these particular five areas and if you have to you know select one maybe the emotional space that, that that is is high on the 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 agenda um, and the sexual space as, as, as well, not yeah. suggesting that the others aren't important, but, but uh, you know, understanding all of them and maybe that interest means having those conversations yeah. not only with your kids, maybe with uh, your other friends as well and kind of say, Hey, you know, I listened to this podcast and it, yeah. uh, you know, this, the, the, this lady, you know, Dave was talking about a massive study and 62% of, of, of Australians have experienced this um, all these, these maladaptive, uh, sorry, these, these, these maltreatment experience in childhood. What does it mean? How does it play mm. out? How can we make a difference? What, what, what's interesting about this in terms of how, you know, we can, change the narrative and the conversation become part of that uh, rather than you know just neglecting that that that, mm. that space as, as well because it affects everybody um uh, amazing I, amazing absolute study where where can we find out more like obviously your you and your team your publishing still lots the the, 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 the data um, and there'll be some follow-up um, studies as well where do we find out more about this about the resources I think you mentioned about one talk at a time I think it was called and, and you've mentioned a couple just a moment ago where, where can we find out more yes yeah, so for research about our our Australian child maltreatment study they can go to acms.au and that has a whole host of resources there. It's got links to our scientific papers for the research people, but it's also got a really nice report for lay people. So if you're, you know, thinking about other practitioners or parents, like that's the kind of thing that they can read. It's it's nice and easy to process and understand. There's infographics there for people that are wanting to kind of share things um, with clients or, you know, even just on their social media and things like that. So please download, share away, all those kind of things. Um, the... One talk at a time by the National Office of Child Safety. Um, you put me on the spot. I'm not sure I know 100% the website, but I think it's childsafety.org. Um, but I'll I'll send you the link and can put it in your in your um, yeah, synopsis or wherever you, you put that. Um, but I, yeah, I, I would really I think you, you hit the nail on the head with it. It's, it's multiple conversations. It's talking to our kids. It's talking to each other, and we can actually change the narrative and prevent child maltreatment in Australia. Such an important topic, and uh, even though I can't uh, thank you enough, um, uh, or, or tell you how much I appreciate you and the work that you and your team uh, are doing, um, I hope that much more government funding uh, is is utilised for these types of studies, so that we can know the data, understand what the lay of the land is, and therefore be informed about how how to do this, and then pilot up some some studies and see what we can do you know hopefully some monies can go towards saying let's 
select a region and do some campaigns, do some programs, do some education with parents to see what what works before we roll it out to the whole of Australia. Um, I'm sure that's on on the agenda. Um, if not, um, it should be. Uh, you know, to to make a difference. And um, how 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 rewarding has this work been? Before I let you go, how how, how has this been for for you um, as a human, as a researcher, as an academic, um, and as a parent? Yeah, look, I mean, I just feel so grateful to be doing work that's really meaningful. And, you know, at the end of the day, if if we can change that dial, it's, it's made a huge difference. But it's it's nice to just go home and go, I've made a difference. And sometimes I talk to the kids like, what what do you do at work in that office? I'm like, we do data that makes a difference. And that's that's what it is. So it's, you know, I love it. And I'm, I appreciate the opportunity to be here and share that you know, how important it is and how passionate it is. All my friends are like, please stop talking about this to, to us. But, it, you know, it's, it's something that we ne- really need to do and I'm excited about it. Hmm. One other thing that just, just jumped out at me as well, you did mention briefly that there's even increased rates for gender diverse, transgender, um, gender fluid, so on, population that is above what we're talking about here as well um mm-hmm. i think that is notable as well because that that's a very uh defined you know sub subsection um and hopefully there's interventions around how do we address those you know whether it's a cultural called type thing an lgbtqi uh, a space that we can inform ourselves a bit more so that you know all parents within their context can can understand how do we do this um that, yeah. that is appropriate for us individually is there is there any papers or anything that are have started to dissect it in in, yes. in these types of ways yet or, or it's still early days there are so our, our main prevalence paper by matthews et al does talk about the prevalence of those five types at a, a whole of population among gender diverse people but most of those people were in our youth sample. So there's kind of a little bit of things. We have two papers um, under review at the moment um, looking at these in a bit more detail. So um, it's, it's a stay, a wait and stay tuned for that data, really. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting to, to to start dissecting everything. I, I imagine for you and your team, it's like, where do you start? Like we could just, yeah. you know, once the data is there, which is so important and valid, um, you know, you can do so much with it. But um, uh, Dave, that, Thank you so much. As, as I said, I appreciate you and and for all the work that you and your team do. It it, it makes such a huge difference, uh, certainly to me. Feeling that uh, there's there's academics like 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 you people who are passionate in this space that do believe in you know very strong methodology and the scientific method and and and, and informing Australians and government and policy about how do we do this to to make a genuine difference and this is a collective effort um uh, but you know certainly thank you uh, immensely for for your work and, and efforts and inspiring others and i hope many more join the team and and uh we can maybe have a conversation in in the future about how sure. things have moved in the right direction yeah thank you and i will just call out our, our lead investigator ben matthews who's done an amazing job of of corralling all of us from across Australia and in fact the UK and, and the US as well so it's it's been a huge team effort and um, I'm grateful to be a part of it so and thank if you if there's any passionate academics out there that really want to get get your teeth stuck into some good things I think you should uh 
uh, reach out because these are worthwhile, meaningful, you know, life-changing, world-changing, you know, things that, that potentially, you know, if, if we get behind this sort of approaches, you know, we, we, we could be, you know, leaders in the world about tackling hard difficult problems yeah. um and 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 allow that to extrapolate to the rest of the world or at least for others to look look and be inspired by how we do it well but um thank you again can't appreciate uh, uh how how uh, uh beautiful and, and 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 wonderful this has been for for myself and um certainly inspirational makes me feel much better uh, to have people like you on, on on the job um so yeah thank you and and um yeah uh, not I'm lost for words because I'm just blown away by how how amazing and important this is. So yeah, thank you. No, thank you very much for the opportunity. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources and just lastly if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team develop your experience and get into some exciting work come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out i'd love to hear from you